And Father, we're grateful for this day, and we pray now as we turn again to this wonderful subject that you would uh, grant us grace to uh, think carefully and to have our hearts um, moved and learn better to live as unto you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, um, uh, the, the pressure is on now because we can only meet for two more weeks. Uh, so for the next two weeks, what we're going to do is this. I'm going to uh, go through the chapters we have to get through uh, by uh, first, uh, when we come to a chapter, I'll ask you if there's any terms you don't understand or if there's any questions you have uh, about some part of it. And we'll go directly to where your questions are. Uh, so that at least for every chapter, you'll have had the opportunity to get something cleared up if, if it isn't clear to you. And then I'll just make a few comments about uh, the language. And that, that I think we'll be able to get through the remaining material. Uh, I would have loved to have had more of an elaborated discussion, but I think that's what's going to have to be. So we begin with chapter 7 on the perseverance of the saints. This is a beautiful doctrine, of course. Uh, we notice again the continuity, uh, accepted, called, sanctified. Well, these who have had this work of the Spirit, it, we'll see it finished. Uh, they'll be ones who persevere. Um, the uh, Notice it's not totally or finally. It's never a complete falling away, nor a final fall, falling away. It's impossible. Um, the uh, second section then it tells us we persevere because we are preserved. And thus follows this amazing cascade of reasons for both the fact of it and the certainty and infallibility of it. It's because of the immutability of God's decree, his unchangeable love, uh, the power of Christ's intercession, the abiding work of the Spirit, the fact that We've been regenerated. The spirit seed of God is within. And from the very nature of the covenant of grace. So this perseverance is certain and infallible. Nevertheless, in the third section they say, uh, there are many things that can um, uh, interrupt the life of a believer, whether Satan or the world or our own flesh, uh, from the neglect of the means of preservation and from other sins. And uh, therefore, you can come to grieve the Spirit of God and have God's fatherly displeasure and therefore be deprived to some degree of uh, what you had heretofore achieved. Uh, the others would be grieved by it uh, and scandalized and that God could even use temporal judgments uh, to reclaim uh, out of his fatherly care. So there we have it, perseverance of the saints. Um, the uh, questions from you all. I, here I told you what I was going to do and then did the opposite. I've made my comments, but I'll try and reverse myself the next time. Anybody, any terms there used or anything that you don't understand about that? It's a precious truth. All right, on to chapter 18, Assurance of Grace and Salvation. Um, we have four sections here unfolding the doctrine. Anyone with any question about terms, uh, the phrasing, uh, the, the use of Scripture uh, in this chapter? All right, well, let me comment uh, First, we have uh, false assurance distinguished from true. Uh, there are some people who deceive themselves uh, with false hopes. Um, but the true assurance, uh, well, in fact, I'll just lay this out. Uh, true assurance humbles a person. False assurance leads to spiritual pride. True assurance 
leads to increased diligence in the Christian life. False assurance leads to indolence. Sinners at ease in Zion is the way the uh, Puritans used to speak about it. Leads to indolence and self-indulgence. True assurance is open to candid self-examination and desires to be searched and corrected by God. Whereas false assurance uh, is satisfied just with appearances and wants to avoid uh, any further deep examination. Uh, And then, finally, true assurance leads to a heartfelt aspiration for a more intimate fellowship with God whereas false assurance typically leads to self-satisfaction, sort of coasting along in the Christian life. Um, So uh, the point is they're saying that all believers can be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace, uh, but there are means used uh, to that end. But first I'm going to describe the the nature of the assurance a little more closely. Um, And that is that it's not just probably, but they insist it's infallible uh, because it's founded on the truth of God's word, the evidence of the truth being found in yourself, and the conclusion through the Spirit of God uh, uh, that in fact um, I belong to the Lord um, and that's the, the Spirit's special work to do in the third section then we come to uh, a very important controversy that I think the Puritans settled well um, in general the first reformers in opposition to Rome seem to have taught that all genuine faith was certainly assured. Um, Rome taught that faith was only intellectual assent to truth and thus insisted no one could have assurance without extraordinary revelation. Uh, Of course, Westminster remedies the the mistake um, because um, although, uh, how shall I say it, Faith, when it's being exercised, is assured. But when I turn to look at my faith to see if it's genuine, that isn't assured because I'm no longer exercising faith. I'm I'm looking at myself. Um, So Westminster distinguishes between full assurance and... um, uh, um, the the faith's assurance itself. Um, so you've got faith with a measure of assurance, and you know that every time you're actually exercising faith. But then you have a faith that's come to full assurance, and, and you see this, you remember from chapter 14, when we talked about faith in the third section. They said, this faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, may often and many ways be assailed and weakened, but it gets the victory, now here's the line, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance uh, uh, through Christ. You see, there's the idea. All faith is believing God, and all believing of God has some character of assurance, but when faith grows up into its fullness and maturity, then uh, it can attain to full assurance. Um, so we, we could put it this way, and I'll, here I'll quote to you a very able theologian from the 19th century. Faith is essentially assured in its object, Christ. But when the object of faith is my faith, then I may not be fully assured. The first is a direct act of faith, the latter is a reflex act of faith. Uh, so here's Hodge. God says that whoever believes is saved. That is the object of direct faith. 
I believe. That is a matter of conscience, conscious experience. Therefore, I am saved. That's a matter of inference. And it's the essence of full assurance. And it may take some time for a believer to come to that. But every believer's faith is capable of it. And therefore, they say, that it's the duty of everyone to give all uh, uh, diligence to make your calling and election sure, uh, quoting from Peter. Um, And they talk about the beautiful benefits that follow from it that the heart is enlarged with peace and joy, there's love and thanksgiving to God, strength and cheerfulness in our calling. Uh, these fruits then don't incline people to, to be uh, um, those who are loose and not diligent in the Christian life. It, ensure, it, it leads people to be um, uh, more uh, rich and um, enabled with respect to the Christian life. So, uh, the last point they notice is that true believers can have their assurance shaken. Uh, And here are the reasons. Uh, They identify four. Negligence in preserving it, falling into some special sin, coming by some vehement temptation, or even in some cases, if God were to withdraw the light of his countenance and uh, allow this as a part of testing, uh, that you would walk in the darkness but have no light. But they say, with utter confidence, a person who goes through that will never be utterly destitute of the seed of God and life of faith, love for Christ and the brethren, sincerity of heart, out of which in due time his assurance will be revived, and in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. One may lose the exercise of full assurance, but the principle from which it springs can never disappear. That's the chapter on assurance. Um, Did my further discussion lead you to any question or... It uh, looks like Bonnie or Bill. It's me. It's always me. <laughs> <laughs> what I was thinking of when I was reading this over is it's when you have a dear friend that you think is truly a believer that goes through this last, the fourth section of feeling just so discouraged and so questioning whether they could truly be saved because of all any of those things. What, as a brother or sister in Christ, what do we say? Do we take them to this? Do we take? Oh yes, I think this is very, very helpful pastorally, uh, and to remind them of the realities that um, in Christ you the, these two chapters work in tandem to remind them that uh, the Lord will never fail to complete the good work that He's begun in them, as Paul says to the Philippians, um, and. Because of that, um, that, there are means that they can use, uh, they can look to see in their life, or any of these things that can cause assurance to be um, uh, uh, lost to some degree. Are they present, and can they be remedied? I will add one thing that I don't know whether the divines uh, thought of, but uh, Robert Dabney used to teach a course in pastoral theology at Union Seminary. And I came across his notes, and there was the most remarkable section where he said, um, the Bible says that a Christian will persevere and that they can be assured. And if the things that lead to that are present in the life of a believer, as much as you can sincerely know, and they don't experience this, that's a sign that there's some other cause than spiritual at work. And he would have them look into physical causes, and of course, as we've developed, we know that there are um, uh, 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 
mental, emotional causes that can be lead that that have nothing to do with spirituality, but have to do with the weakness of the body and uh, body and mind. And you'd look for the remedies there in that case. So that, uh, <laughs> piece in the post day on house plants. They said people who fill their house with plants are happier. <laughs> they don't get depressed. <laughs> And there's all, all kinds of reasons that they have found uh, that are both psychological and physiological. So, you know, somebody who isn't eating right could become off emotionally. And so we, we remember that we're embodied souls, that spiritual remedies are for spiritual problems, but spiritual remedies don't not going to cure a flu. And so if the source is uh, bodily, you need to find that out and address it. That's really helpful. Thanks, Dave. All right. Uh, Will or Kate? There it was. Sorry, Dave. I'm a little confused because it says it's infallible, but then there are people who are hypocrites, and I wouldn't think a hypocrite would know they were a hypocrite. Uh, I think the divines believe that there is some level of self-consciousness that is not deceived, that the person knows that they're a hypocrite. Um, uh, And I don't know, if if you've ever found yourself tempted to try and act in some way, to pull the wool over somebody's eyes, to... You know you're doing it. I, I, I think there's a self-consciousness there, and um, that that's the uh, account of it. Does that help, Kate? Yes, thank you. All right. Any other questions on that? All right. Wait a minute here. My, my helper stopped. I do still have a question. Yes, please. The eighteen, uh, the, the second point, in the middle of that paragraph, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made. Yes. That is not quite clear to me. The inward evidence of those graces. Yes. Uh, that's what the Puritans called the practical syllogism. Um, the, uh, so, um, uh, f- f- uh, one who trusts in Christ, the Spirit works hope within them in his coming and his return. That's a grace that comes to me by faith. And when I see that grace there, then I say, well, then yes, I I can be assured. Because what the Bible has said, in other words, my, my name's not mentioned in the Bible. But, but uh, uh, the way a genuine Christian experiences the world is described in the Bible. And when, so I know it says, whosoever believes will have eternal life. There's a promise. So then I look, do I believe? And does my belief have the characteristics of the graces that are associated with believing? Uh, faith, joy, hope. Uh, love of the brethren, you know, and I find those things there. I say to myself, <laughs> of myself, I'm a depraved sinner. I could never gin up that stuff. That's got to be the work of the Spirit of God within me. And, and that leads to the conclusion then. Uh, you've got the promise. You've got the graces to whom the promises are made. The conclusion, I must be the recipient of that promise. Thank you. That is helpful. Anything else on these two wonderful and very important subjects? Um, I have a question. Yes. It's probably um, probably been uh, asked in different ways already, but um, how does the whole introspection of the inward graces, as we were just talking about, um, differentiate from the whole idea of 
as you are um, growing in the Christian walk, you're also becoming more in tune with your sinfulness. And that could lead you to, you know, question things. Yeah, yeah right. You know, <laughs> sure. So when, you're, when you're looking in, inwardly, like the Bible's like, you should be walking in the Spirit. So right, right. I've always had a tension there where it's like, you see, you're saying, uh, anyway, I don't know if that makes sense. Like, how do you Yeah, sure this? it does, Jason. And I need, uh, the thing is, I can't answer the question without a chalkboard. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, think of a triangle. And it's a timeline. And when you become a Christian, uh, th- this part is the amount of sin in your life. And as you grow in grace and are sanctified, that gets smaller and smaller. But then, when you become a Christian, your self-consciousness of sin and, and its sinfulness is very, very small. And as you grow in grace, then that becomes more and more. And just knowing that is the remedy. Just knowing that, in fact, my increased sense of the sinfulness of sin is actually of one of those graces to whom promises are made. Does that help, Jason? Uh, yes, it does. Thank you. All right. Any other? All right, on to the law. This is a magnificent chapter. Um, that we have, uh, you, you can see it's of great interest to them. There are seven sections in this chapter. Um, we start off with a repetition of what we've already heard uh, in chapter 7, that's section 2 in the Covenant of Works, um, that Adam was in covenant with God. Oh, I'm running ahead again. Questions, terms, anything in this chapter uh, that you know right now and you need to ask about. All right. So, uh, back to this first section. Um, it, it's elaborated a little, but it's basically the same thing that uh, we saw in 7.2 uh, of the Covenant of Works. And recall there that the Covenant of Works started with the assertion that we should be in a relationship with God like the covenant of works is itself God's grace. The covenant is works-based. You obey, you are blessed. You uh, disobey, you are cursed. But that in itself, that we should have that kind of gracious, uh, uh, that kind of inducement is a gracious work of God. He He wouldn't have to do such a thing as that. And that's the context here. But the point is, in this first section in particular, that God didn't make man morally neutral. He made him upright. He was endued with the power and ability to keep that law. Then it goes on to say that the fall doesn't undo the law of God. It continues to be a perfect rule of righteousness. And it notes that uh, that moral law uh, was delivered by God on Mount Sinai. Um, Now, they say written on two tables, that's true. Uh, But they say the first four containing our duty, the second six uh, to uh, God, and the second six duty to man. It gives the impression that they might think that the first table was the first four, the second table or tablet was the other. We know now that that's not the case. Uh, We've studied uh, ancient Near Eastern covenants, and there were always duplicate copies uh, of the covenant made. And this was almost certainly two complete sets of the Ten Commandments. Um, the commandments, the tablets, you remember, are kept in the Ark of the Covenant. 
the written law of Moses is separate at, on the outside. So this is at the heart of the covenant. I just noticed in passing, here the divines also are taking the part of the Reformed on the numbering of the commandments. Uh, Rome and uh, Lutheran uh, take what we are think are the first and second commandment and make it one. And they take what we think is the tenth commandment and make it two. Uh, the, um, but the important thing here is to see Jesus' wonderful summation of uh, the ten words, as they're called literally in the Old Testament. Um, that the first table of the law, the way we talk about it, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And what the second table is about is loving your neighbor as yourself. And the whole of the, whole of the moral law hangs on that point. Um, now, uh, thirdly then, they begin to talk about a, a, a distinction that belongs to Reformed theology and, um, the, uh, and for a long time was admired. That is, that you can distinguish the law uh, into moral, ceremonial, and civil. These days, it's common for people to to make fun of that and to uh, say that uh, it's not true. Um, but the criticism, I think, is overly nice and turns on an equivocation on the term moral. Yes, of course, in one sense, all of the law imposed a moral obligation. You were morally obliged to keep the Sabbath. You're morally obliged to do the sacrifices. You're morally obliged to pay your civil taxes. So, all right, great observation, (laughs) but it's utterly superficial. The older distinction took the moral law properly to be that which is grounded in the nature of God and the nature of man and was thus unchangeable, while both the civil and ceremonial While they were in force, imposed a moral obligation, they were not unchangeable and therefore uh, uh, are adapted to the circumstances that God intended at that time and place. And you can see how laws like that would have to be. So here would be a moral principle. Let the punishment fit the crime. All right. A person during a time of extraordinary prosperity, steals a loaf of bread. What punishment fits that crime? How about the same act, stealing a loaf of bread in the midst of terrible famine? Doesn't that change because of the circumstances? And the answer is yes. And that, that, that you have the moral principle and then you have the application of it to circumstances. That distinction is sound, and we see that distinction in play. First, dealing with the ceremonial law, that is the religious laws of the, the life of the religious life of Israel. Uh, and these were all intended to prefigure the final revelation of God's saving work. And so long as uh, that needed to be done, it was suitable that it should continue, but when the reality came to be present, all the ceremonial laws were abrogated and set aside. And that could be done without any um, uh, diminution uh, of, of the dignity of the law for the purpose it had during its period. God gave laws to frame Israel um, in its life, in its time and place, and they the divines insist, expired altogether with that nation uh, and um, d- did not continue on. And um, I- I'll just mention briefly here, Calvin uh, wonderfully addresses this issue. There are some people who have come to think in various times and places that um, the... Uh, um, If that that the that the political law of Moses was ought to be the political law of nations in all times and places. There have been always Christian subgroups that have thought that, and thought it was a dishonor to the law of Moses if nations had uh, their own laws. 
Uh, Calvin in the Institutes makes a nice point. He said, he's been discussing what kinds of laws ought to belong to a nation state. And he says, um, the, uh, I've been talking about what laws can be piously used before God and be rightly administered among men. I would have preferred to pass over this matter in utter silence if, if I were not aware that here many dangerously go astray. For there are some who deny that a commonwealth is duly framed, which neglects the political system of Moses and is ruled by the common law of nations. Let other men consider how perilous and seditious this notion is. It will be enough for me to have proved it false and foolish. Well, you see, Calvin didn't have any time for that point of view. In any case, the only thing that abides is what the divines call the general equity of the law. And you see a perfect example of that idea in the proof text from 1 Corinthians uh, 9. Paul cites the Old Testament law, um, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. And he says, does God only care about oxen? No, there's a moral principle here that we can take from it. That is, uh, that a minister ought to be paid for his labor. Um, and um, so that here, Paul took it, that, that there was a use of the moral law uh, not to govern oxen, but to take the moral principle of it and apply it in a different circumstance. This moral law uh, binds everybody, Christians, non-Christians, to obedience, um, and that for two reasons. Uh, first, because uh, it's actually right. The rules are. Um, the uh, second is that this is part of what it means to be in relationship with God. And being in Christ could never end that, but rather being in Christ only strengthens what it means to have. A relationship with God. So, item six. True believers are not under law as a covenant of works. And yet, law is of great use. It's a rule of life to teach us how to walk with God. It helps us discover our sin. It's a way for coming under deeper conviction for our sin. And it helps us to see the beauty of Christ's perfect obedience and how much we need that. So, too, it's uh, helpful in, the, uh, in forbidding sin and showing what sins deserve. It helps us to fight against our sin. Uh, so, too, the promises. Uh, that We know that God loves obedience and he blesses that obedience. Uh, and therefore... Um, a person's doing good, and this is a crucial sentence, the en ending sen sentence. A person doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourages the one and deters the other is no evidence of being under law and not under grace. The law shows my God's good way and his delight in it, and therefore I want to follow that way. It closes none of the aforementioned uses of the law are contrary to the grace of the gospel, but sweetly comply with it, God's Spirit enabling us to freely and cheerfully do his will. All right. Um, the, uh, that's uh, the law. We press on to chapter 20, Christian Liberty. Dave? Yes. This is Paul. I Oh my goodness! Oh no! It was one of my favorite. I've listened to it multiple times. It's so such a great critique of theonomy. So oh, fantastic! It's, it's in the chat. Very good. So you you can get the link out of there and uh, hear more on that subject if you like. Thanks, Paul. Um. 
All right, chapter 20. Any questions on chapter 20? Um, terms? Anything that's said there that you don't get? All right. Uh, this is another renowned chapter of the Confession of Faith. It made a great contribution to the history of theology, and in fact, it set forth what would turn out to be world-shaking principles uh, about the nature of conscience and the liberty that we have. The first thing they do is set forth uh, the t- great 12 freedoms that belong to the Christian. It's, it's glorious. Freedom from guilt, freedom from the wrath of God, free from the curse of the moral law, uh, free from this present evil world and bondage to Satan, uh, dominion of sin, evil afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, everlasting damnation, and also free to have access to God and yield our obedience to him as a child. It's a precious paragraph and something to be celebrated in and to reflect on often. All of this, they say, was common to believers under the law. But under the New Testament, there are three things that have come to pass that make this liberty even more wonderfully enlarged. Uh, The first is freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law. Uh, The uh, second is greater boldness to the throne of grace. Uh, because of the knowledge of the gospel in its fullness in Christ, and three, because we have a a fuller communication of the Spirit of God than most believers under the Old Testament ever had. There were a few who had special endowments of the Spirit for particular purposes, Uh, but in the New Testament age, the outpouring of the Spirit in in relationship to the promise in Joel and uh, so on, uh, is such that there's even a more glorious uh, uh, grasp of this freedom. Uh, the passage in Second Corinthians 3 is especially wonderful. Uh, now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, here we come to the uh, world-shaking part. God alone is the Lord of the conscience. Here is our most fundamental freedom. We're free from the doctrines and commandments of men that if they're contrary to God's word at all and if it has to do with faith or worship, even beside it, in addition to it, uh, such that to obey or believe under such circumstances is to betray true liberty of conscience uh, and, in fact, to require an implicit faith and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. A profound threat to humanity as created in the image of God, if that's demanded. And here, Christians from time to time, as well as totalitarian nations, uh, as systems have required that of people. Um, Now, uh, a caveat, uh, Christian liberty uh, doesn't um, uh, undo the very purpose of our freedom in Christ, so that anyone who sins and thinks that's part of Christian liberty doesn't get it that what Christian liberty is is the ability to freely serve the Lord. Section 4 makes sure that we don't get the idea that uh, order and freedom are at odds with one another. Rightly understood, Order, that is the governmental orders in church and state, and Christian freedom are perfectly consistent with one another, since both are from God, and to put them at odds is to oppose God, uh, and thus uh, persons who do that can be corrected by the discipline of the church. I will say that this section originally, as it came from the divines, um, uh, included uh, a uh, conjunction at the very end, ours ends proceeded against by the censures of the church, uh, the original had and by the power of the civil magistrate, uh, the Americans in 1788, having come to the circumstance where there was no state church any longer, 
uh, wisely removed that, that the state had no business trying to enforce uh, uh, religious matters. Um, thus we have uh, Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, a really wonderful section. And we press on now to um, 23 of the civil magistrate. 23 has four sections. Uh, first, they say that God has ordained civil magistrates and have armed them for the, with their purpose and their means. Uh, they are to defend the good and to punish evildoers. They have the power of force to do so. Uh, they say Christians can be magistrates. Uh, and, in fact, they ought to have special care uh, to be good magistrates. And uh, further, that uh, it is entirely proper that the sword be used, that force be part of the government's preserving the peace, uh, both from criminality and from nations outside. And so they say uh, it was be perfectly proper to wage war upon just and necessary uh, conditions. The third section here uh, originally was quite different. Uh, there was a different paragraph altogether, uh, but it um, had much more of a role of the magistrate uh, as uh, with an established church than it could ever have here. Uh, they were to keep the church pure, uh, suppress blasphemies and heresies, uh, to, uh, um, uh, and they had the right to call synods and councils if they thought it was needed. Uh, and all of that's gone. And what's put, put in its place is that the government has the responsibility to protect the good uh, of all of their people, regardless of their re religious perspective. I will say this is remarkable. In 1788, um, it's only been a few years that the idea of dis disestablishment uh, had even be, been an option for Christians to think about. It's never happened in the history of the world. And here by 1788, they have a beautiful statement of understanding the balancing of this new or, order for the ages. So section four notes uh, the responsibilities we have towards civil government, to pray for them, to honor them, to pay taxes, um, to obey their lawful commands, notice that, that's a crucial um, uh, uh, qualifier. They know that it's, it's possible that there would be unlawful commands, and that's a different story altogether. And they note in particular that because they're uh, infidels or have a different religion, that doesn't make void the magistrate's authority, uh, his just and legal authority, and that ecclesiastical persons are not exempted from that. Uh, as Rome uh, wanted to claim, um, and that, in fact, uh, Rome could dispense with the magistrate's power if they did, thought he was uh, of the wrong religion. Um, the, uh, so, questions about uh, the section on the magistrate. No? All right, on to 24, marriage and divorce. Um, this is uh, uh, usually something you would breeze through, but today <laughs> there's a good bit of <laughs> distension on these subjects. But you see, the Bible and the divine sides, I think it's very clear. One man and one woman, not more than one wife uh, or one husband at a time. Um, it's ordained of God. It isn't a human institution. It's not for us to decide how it should be ordered. It was a gift from the Lord, and uh, a fourfold purpose is identified in two. And I think it's especially beautiful to note uh, that the first thing they say, it's for the mutual help of husband and wife. That's a beautiful sensibility that really came forward in marriage doctrine from the Puritans. Uh, the medieval marriage doctrine was very, very different, and uh, this led to a revolution in the understanding of marriage. Uh, section 3 uh, talks about uh, there needing to be a proper uh, consent and uh, maturity, but insists that uh, Christians are called to marry only in the Lord. And um, 
and thus they say that uh, you ought not to marry a person uh, that is ungodly uh, or to be unequally yoked uh, with someone that holds a radically different religious perspective. Um, it talks about degrees of consanguinity uh, that are improper, incestuous marriages, and so on. And then it speaks about adultery uh, or fornication after a contract uh, gives the occasion for the innocent party to justly dissolve uh, the contract uh, or the marriage afterward. Uh, and uh, after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. This too is something of a revolution in marriage doctrine um, and uh, it has been an important part of understanding but then here uh, they put some boundaries on that in the last section uh, people are because of their corruption are apt to look for reasons why they might get out of a marriage and they say not only adultery but a willful desertion that can't be remedied by the church or the civil magistrate is cause sufficient for dissolving the bond and there must be a public and orderly proceeding uh, persons not left to their own wills in their own case so that's the section on marriage are there any questions or comments or reflections that you have about that All right, we come to the uh, chapter 25 section on the church. There are six sections here. Uh, you'll remember when we talked about this, uh, the assembly was combined uh, 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 between a few Episcopals, a few Erastians, uh, uh, many Independents, and a few Presbyterians. So the doctrine of the church here doesn't fully embody any one of those views. And it's something of a compromise. That's why, if you recall, uh, when the Scots took the Confession of Faith and Catechisms home to Scotland, which they loved, um, they wrote out their doctrine of church government in a book of church order. And it's much more fully elaborated there what the Presbyterian system is than it is here. But uh, the, uh, of these five sections, they first talk about the uh, Catholic uh, or universal church, they say it's invisible, and it's invisible because uh, there are persons who are part of it you can't see. Um, it's, it, it, as I said before, the church is intrinsically visible. It's just that in time, it's not entirely visible. But there's no such thing, strictly speaking, as an invisible church. This is a matter of speaking. Uh, um, so it's the whole of the elect gathered into one under Christ the head. Uh, the visible church, um, they say, is also universal. It's wherever the gospel is gone. It's not confined to one nation the way it was with Israel. It's th those throughout the whole world who profess the true religion and their children. And they say that that church is the kingdom of Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. The third section notes that Christ has given this visible church uh, ministry and uh, rules and regulations. It's given them a purpose, gathering and perfecting the saints. Um, and uh, it notes that Christ promises to be with the church in this great work. Uh, section 4 notes that uh, this church is sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, more or less pure, uh, depending on whether the gospel is taught in its fullness um, and uh, whether its worship is performed properly. Uh, the purest churches, this is in a sense the doctrine of sanctification applied to the uh, institution of the church, the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, and some are so denigrated uh, as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. That's a phrase from Revelation. Nevertheless, there will always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Uh, the church will never perish, as the hymn uh, insists. Um, 
there's no other head of that church than Christ, uh, and the Pope uh, cannot be taken in any sense to be the head. The original divines went on to say some unpleasant things about the Pope uh, at the end of that sentence, and uh, uh, modern Presbyterians uh, have eliminated that uh, from the confession, thinking that it wasn't really all that necessary to say. <laughs> um, so, the church. We come to 26, the communion of the saints, a beautiful little chapter um, with a wonderful truth related to it. Um, and it's only in three sections. But um, the first thing to note about it is this, that the communion of the saints, the union of God's people together, is grounded in their union with Christ. And therefore, that's not an achievement. It's a reality. The achievement is the experience of the communion of the saints. As we grow together as a body to come to know one another in Christ, the unity that's already there is more and more manifest. But the unity is there because each Believer in the church is united to Christ and in Christ are united to one another so that we have fellowship with him and united to one another we have fellowship with uh, one another in gifts and graces and that we have duties public and private for our mutual good both in the inward and the outward man we want to help each other spiritually and where it's necessary, uh, help each other with respect to the things of this world. Um, and thus, given that reality, saints are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and uh, relieve each other uh, as necessary. And as far as God offers opportunity, that's to be expended to extended to Christians in every place that we know of them and can in some way be helpful or useful. Um, the last bit then wants to make sure that certain heresies that have come up with respect to this doctrine um, are repudiated. Uh, the communion that we have in Christ and with one another doesn't make us anywise uh, partakers of his Godhead, uh, to be equal with Christ, uh, which is blasphemous, and nor does the communion with one another that we have take away or infringe the title or propriety uh, that each man has in his own goods. Uh, so that um, sometimes certain Christian sects have been tempted toward a kind of communism or communalism, and this insists that, in fact, the idea of private property is an essential prerequisite to charity and uh, kindly sharing with others. You can't share if <laughs> nothing's yours, uh, that it's an essential prerequisite, but, uh, but it, it is an essential manifestation of that union, that we have the willingness to help each other, even in the things of this world, in any way that we can. Well, this is quite remarkable, even with my computer blowing up. <laughs> we have gotten through these chapters, uh, Bonnie. I just wanted to make a comment on that last section, just after some conversations the last two weeks during um, Coffee Fellowship time and, and how grateful we are that we can actually be together and, and yes. just that the Lord knew that we needed one another and, and that he, that he, that the divines put this there to accentuate the blessing that it is to have one another. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And it is one of the great blessings to see Christ formed in another person and to have an opportunity to be part of that formation. Uh, and uh, it, it just is a glorious doctrine. Any other comments, questions? A question. Um, throughout the confession, the divines specifically addressed uh, certain heresies that have come up in the past or that were in, in play or have come to the fore. 
during their you know during their time um, have there since been heresies that the confession does not address at all or that, that are not covered in the Westminster confession uh, certainly um, the assault on scripture that comes in the 19th century and has carried on to this day among uh, certain Christian churches um, the divines could have never imagined. Okay. Uh, they, don't, they don't say anything at all about inerrancy, which is a word that's very important in contemporary evangelicalism, and rightly so. Now, I just want to say in passing here, I don't want to scandalize anybody, but inerrancy isn't really a big deal. My washing machine manual is, is inerrant. I've been through it. Everything it says to do, if I do it, it it's right. Um, the reason, only reason why inerrancy becomes an important word is because of what people were implying. That is to say that it's possible to have a God-breathed book that has errors in it. And the, the divines thought, if we say it's God-breathed, we've said everything needs to be said. God doesn't err. He doesn't speak with a forked tongue. and say, They wouldn't have ever thought of even needing to elaborate on it. But in the 20th century, with historical criticism, uh, people um, began to try and want to have a, a still-inspired and authoritative scripture, but one that was full of all kinds of errors. Um, but so um, I expect if the divines were going to rewrite chapter 1, there would be some additional mater- material in there. That would be one... Um, the docetic heresy um, that, uh, or I, I don't mean that. Uh, oh, my brain's not working. That, that, uh, her, uh, modern Christological heresy is the idea of Christ emptying himself. Uh, and that meaning uh, giving up some of his divinity. Um, why can't I think of the name? Anyway, it comes from speculations about the Philippian passages. And also, again, there, they might have wanted to address that more fully. Um, One of the great difficulties we have is that the 17th century was a magnificent age for creed making, uh, both out of inclination and gifting and uh, whereas today uh, we're not so much uh, that there have been attempts so for example on the question of inerrancy there's the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy that was like a, a council was gathered and a very fine statement was produced and uh, it's kind of fallen into disuse now but for a long time it was a, a standard that groups and people used um the uh, uh, those are two things that come. That's a good question. That's a very good question. I'm sure there are more. If I thought more about it, um, and it, it it's in, in one sense, it's a shame that to some degree the confession has become something like a museum piece. Um, the uh, we all say. It's in principle capable of being amended, changed. We, almost every, all American Presbyterians, think the changes that our forefathers made in 1788 were good changes. Um, there, I can think of some places where it might be good to uh, change it, but I, nobody has the stomach for it these days. <laughs> and they're, they're afraid of opening Pandora's box, I think, also. But uh, that's a great question. Dave, can I ask, um, were Japanese notes on pastoral counseling part of the systematic theology? No, I've never seen it printed or it's not printed anywhere? No, I've never seen it anywhere. Uh, I found that among his papers um, in, mm-hmm. in, uh, at Union. Uh, I wish he'd have written an essay on it because it was really it, it was quite remarkable, and it, it, in fact it, it has played a huge role in whatever usefulness I've had with trying to 
help people sort through problems. Um, Sounds like a good project to take. <laughs> yeah. Oh my. Well, um, I can't believe we've accomplished this. Thank you all for your patience. I, I hope e even this sort of flying survey was not unprofitable for you. Uh, but uh, we've got one more to go. <laughs> so, uh, anybody, a last word, a uh, concern of any kind? All right, let me pray for us. Father, how wonderful all of these great truths we've surveyed. Um, your promise that you will sustain us in spiritual life, that we can be assured of being in heaven with you, uh, that your law is a perfect rule for life and of great use to us. Yet in Christ we have been made free. Uh, and I think it's a remarkable saying uh, after considering those 12 points of freedom that Jesus said, if you are free in me, you are free indeed. We thank you for um, the liberty of conscience and the way that has made more generally human liberty possible in this world for the structures that you've appointed the governments of this world, both in the state and in the church and in marriage. And we thank you for the sweetness of Christian fellowship and for the marvel that this is not an achievement of our efforts, but it's a gift in Christ. And we pray that we would ever grow in our sense of union with him uh, and in thus our great uh, and deep desire to be in union with one another. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.